Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Have you been to Alabama? Have you been to Alabama? But the trick for the whole thing was to think ecologically. He says things like, the mutual dependence of the animal, mineral, and vegetable kingdoms, and how utterly impossible it is for one to exist in a highly organized state without the others, is the thing that farmers need to know. Have you been to Alabama? Have you been to Alabama? Hello, Dallas Campbell here. Welcome once again to another episode of Patented, my podcast about the history of inventions from history hits. Now then, you will have noticed if you're a regular listener that very often stories of inventors and inventions are often overstated. There's a lot of myth, there's a lot of speculation, there's a lot of well, not untruths, but perhaps over-exaggerations about who invented what and when and why. You know, for example, Thomas Crapper inventing the toilet or Leonardo da Vinci. I nearly said Leonardo DiCaprio there. Leonardo da Vinci inventing the helicopter, uh, that sort of thing. And we always like to get to the bottom of things to find out what really happened and who really happened. And today's one of those episodes. It's about the man who did not invent peanut butter, despite popular belief and popular opinion. His name, you will have probably heard his name, George Washington Carver, who was an African-American agriculturalist of note, born at the end of the Civil War. He's gone down in American history books and become a fixture in Black History Month as the peanut man because of the research he did at one stage, fair, fair enough, in his life, looking at new uses for peanuts. Well, today's guest argues that this pigeonholing of Carver, this easy pigeonhole, we like to easily pigeonhole people, as the guy who did stuff with peanuts is very reductive and that Carver was far more innovative and far more radical and far more interesting, quite frankly, Mark Hersey is a professor of agriculture, rural and environmental history at the University of Mississippi and is the author of a book called My Work is That of Conservation, an Environmental Biography of George Washington Carver. And it's an absolutely fascinating story. Mark sees George Washington Carver really as a pioneer of the ecology movement. So when we think about ecology today and the environmental movement, George Washington Carver is a pivotal person in that history. He's someone who proposed a scientific method, most importantly, of farming that was in harmony with nature. He was all about working holistically with nature. He was someone who saw the link 
between the social injustice in the American South at the time and the ecological damage everywhere in the landscape and incredibly relevant stuff for the world today when we look at what's going on. And so it's a real shame that Carver is remembered as just the guy who did stuff with peanuts or the inventor of peanut butter. He was much more than that. So get ready to hear about a remarkable innovator who deserves a much better place in history. Mark, welcome to the show. Welcome beaming live from your parents' basement in Philadelphia. How are you doing, Dallas? <laughs> I was always fascinated by American parents' basements in movies. They always seem to sort of crop up in American movies when I was growing up. Do you know what I mean? Of course I do. They're everywhere. I grew up in the Northeast, in New York and Philadelphia, where everyone has a basement. Then I moved to Kansas, where nobody does. And in Mississippi, no one does either. So I don't know where, where, where do kids hang out? Where do teenagers go to get away from their parents? I have no idea. Well, exactly. But somehow in my memory of American things in the 1980s, there was always that thing of there'd be like a door outside that you lift up. Yeah. And then you could walk down some steps into the bed. And I just remember thinking, God, that I want to be an American just so I can have that. <laughs> just so you can have it. This one isn't so <laughs> it's the cool. the only reason. <laughs> it looks quite good. There's always, it's always kind of interesting things like old junk and things and stuff. Anyway, sorry, I'm digressing. Hey, listen, so where are we going to start with this? Because I want to talk about, we'll talk about George Washington Carver, a little bit of bio. But I really want to, more than anything, I want to kind of address this question of his reputation because he is always known as the peanut man. And your thesis is that it's a lot more than just peanuts. Yeah, in fact, it probably isn't really peanuts at all. At all. Yeah, well, let's start by kind of where that reputation came from and why it's wrong. But I want to just, for listeners who aren't familiar with the name, perhaps particularly in the UK, let's just do a little brief kind of bio, where we are, who we're talking about, and why is this person important? Okay, so if you want to understand George Washington Carver in sort of American popular memory, you start in January 1921. Yes. When George Washington Carver, who's African-American, was the first black man in America to have an advanced degree in agricultural science and has been working at Tuskegee Institute, which was Booker T. Washington's university, your school really. And Carver's been working there for 25 years. And he's an interesting guy. We can talk about why he's an interesting guy. But he shows up in January of 1921. Now, he shows up before Congress on behalf of the peanut lobby. And the peanut lobby only discovered him two years earlier, in the fall of 1919, a member of the Birmingham Peanut Association. Basically, heard about the work that George Washington Carver was doing at Tuskegee, doesn't believe it. Carver claimed he's made milk from peanuts, right? So they show up and this guy is just blown away by Carver. And he's like, we have the perfect guy to basically shill our product. That's really interesting. So we'll come on to who he is and what, what he did in a moment. But this reputation of the peanut guy was basically a kind of advertising thing by the American peanut industry. And it sort of stuck. It was absolutely, you know, he worked with cow peas and sweet potatoes far more than he worked with peanuts. Things he gets credited for as the peanut man, like in popular culture, people might think he invented peanut butter. You know, there are <laughs> jokes in movies about him making computers out of peanuts. He's just always associated with this. But all that had happened well before his work. Well, and, but he did do something. I mean, this idea that he's the peanut guy, he came up with like loads of things, recipes, things that one could do with peanuts, which is where this slightly dodgy reputation comes from, I suppose. That is true. He did come up with lots of things. Many of them were not original to him, and none of them were really marketable. One of his patents, he only has three patents, 
Uh, one of them is for basically a beauty product, like a face powder <laughs> okay. made from peanuts for reasons that are fairly obvious. It never really made much money. And so he's greeted by racist quips. So he shows up and one of the congressmen asks him if he brought any watermelons with him. And he's given 10 minutes, but he's been practicing this. He's been giving talks for years, for 25 years now to audiences that are sometimes hostile. He easily deflects all of that and begins showing them these peanut products that he's worked on. The committee gives him unlimited time. And at the end of the day, he wins a tariff, a protective tariff for America's peanut industry, which, you know, the idea of this black scientist, which was, you know, tough for many white Americans to wrap their head around, period, in 1921, winning over Congress. He's, in fact, Congress, they usher him out with applause. He basically wins a standing ovation in Congress. And this becomes national news. And then the peanut lobby just rides this. And so he begins, you know, giving talks. He basically becomes a rock star. I mean, he's giving talks that are invitation-only events for chambers of commerce. Why were they into him so much? Was it because he was doing work with peanuts or was it because he was a black scientist and that was a novelty for the peanut lobby? What was the draw? Well, all of those things. He was doing some interesting things. The fact that he was a black man allowed white Southerners to say, look, this Jim Crow segregation thing doesn't hold you down. Look, this George Washington Carver, if he can do it, the problem isn't the system. The problem is you. So it's sort of white supremacists latch onto him. African-Americans love him. In 1923, the NAACP awards him its Spingarn Medal, which is the highest honor it can give. Everybody loves him. Then in 1926, he credits God. He's in New York City. He's walking through a market. He sees some plants and he credits. He says, look, there's some inspiration here. I credit God for this inspiration to do things. There's an editorial in the New York Times that says scientists never speak this way. And now the religious right, this is the same time as the Scopes trial. So the fundamentalists grab onto him and it just snowballs. So there are like all sorts of celebratory biographies uh, that come out that are like from God's slave to, you know, world's greatest chemist. And all of this snowballs. I hadn't thought of it like that. He's become this sort of Rorschach test and people sort of whatever people want to see, however people want to use this figure. They can just sort of latch a hold of him. Exactly. Everybody loves him. He's maybe the only figure I can think of that is embraced by the evangelical establishment and the LGBTQIA plus community. Which <laughs> to this day, everyone, you know, because I know everyone, Black History Month, it's always, he always comes out and people talk about him, but it's become a bit of a lazy trope. It has. So he emerged in an era where he was a contributionist hero, right, for black Americans. People... Absolutely latched onto him. Six months after his death in 1943, the first national monument dedicated to an African-American, his birthplace, gets set aside as that. There's a nuclear submarine commissioned in his name in the 60s. Really? There's goodness, a uh, stamp carries his image. He appears in just TV shows. So one of Eddie Murphy's famous skits on Saturday Night Live involves George Washington Carver. He appears in TV shows like Seinfeld, he's referenced. The USDA sets aside a building in his name. Stevie Wonder writes American yeah, Dad. Steve, America Dad has a thing. Yes. Stevie, Stevie Wonder writes yeah. a song about him. He's just, <laughs> everybody loves him. Until the 1970s when academics look at him and say, all this stuff he was credited for is kind of bogus. He didn't really set aside very many. He only had three patents. None of them proved profitable. And, you know, there's an article published in the 1970s that titles George Washington Carver. The subtitle is The Making of a Myth. 
you know? Well, the making of myth, that's a good place just to pause for a moment because we're slightly leaping ahead. You've painted us a lovely picture of the reputation. I want to just go right back to his back. Like, who was he? And, you, you know, you said he was a scientist. Just take us through from, we, I, know, I know we don't know when he was born, but what was his background? Where did he come from and what did he do? So, yeah, George Washington Carver was born in a small town, Diamond, Missouri, not even a town, a rural community uh, in southwestern Missouri, probably as a slave. We don't know the year or the date of his birth. We know that his mother was enslaved. In one of those weird contradictions, his mother's owners were anti-slavery and pro-union, but they had this property, what they saw as property. George Washington Carver's mother was sort of stolen during the Civil War, southwest Missouri. There was all sorts of like sort of vigilante groups going around. George apparently was stolen with them, but not his older brother. But in any case, he winds up back with the family. And after the Civil War, is adopted by this family. And by all indications, it's a loving relationship. He stays in touch with the Carver family for the rest of his life, right? Missouri passes a law that makes it impossible basically for him to get an education locally. So he walks a long way to the nearest school. But since under slavery, laws had forbidden black education, and George Washington Carver was um, uncommonly bright, he found that the teacher at the school couldn't offer him very much. So he winds up basically setting off, cutting himself off as a young teenager from his family and heading out to Kansas in search of an education. He witnesses a lynching right across the border. And that drives him further west. So he becomes a kind of Forrest Gumpian character. That's it. So did he have any sort of money to do this? Was he just kind of walking? Or like, how did he sort of get around? How did he finance himself? It was walking, and then he latched on to another family, of this time a black family, that escorted him for a while. And then he headed west and tried homesteading, one of the great iconic American experiences, sod house and all of that. We don't know exactly what happened out there. We get the first newspaper report about him, which marks him as an interesting guy, but we don't know exactly what happened. We know that a few years later, he's in Iowa, still in search of an education. He winds up enrolling in a small private school, Simpson College. And that was okay. He could go to private school as a black man at the time. As a black man, he could go to he could go to the private school. He wasn't the first person, the first black student at Simpson. He was the second, and it had been some time. Uh, but of course, he is enduring racism all along the way here. It's of a different type than he'll see in Alabama, but there certainly is there's certainly racism. He uh, distinguished himself as an artist, but his art teacher, her name is Etta Budd, she doesn't think that art is a possibility for a black man, that realistically he can make a living doing it. And he's, from his youth, very had shown an affinity for plants. When he was young, he would just collect plants. He was sort of unhealthy and didn't work in the on the farm as much. And so she says, what you're really good at is plants too. And her father is a guy named Joseph L. Budd, who is one of the most well-known horticulturists. And he's just up the road in Ames, Iowa, at the Iowa Agricultural College. Through Joseph Budd's influence, Carver gets accepted and becomes the first black student at the Iowa Agricultural College. Amazing. And so he's, suddenly he finds himself within this institution. Where did the science come from? So he's interested in plants. Where's the sort of step from that into him becoming a well-known or an influential scientist, horticulturalist? So uh, at the Iowa Agricultural College, he winds up working with the leading agricultural scientists of the day. So Bud, who's one of the best-known horticulturists, works with him. A guy named Henry C. Wallace, who will go on to become the United States Secretary of Agriculture. Another guy who will go on to be 
the Secretary of Agriculture. And then uh, most importantly for the story I tell, a guy named Lewis Herman Pamel, who is the first person to write a book on the English language with the term ecology in its title. And so Carver really distinguished himself as a mycologist, a specialist in fungi. He could identify and collect fungi really well. By 1895, he's the first African-American with an undergraduate degree in agricultural science. And 1896 becomes the first black man with an advanced degree in agricultural science. And he's thinking about pursuing a PhD at this point when Booker T. Washington, who's the most famous black man in America and has burst on the scene the previous year in 1895 with his Atlanta Exposition Address. Remind us who he is. So Booker T. Washington, he was the founder of Tuskegee. And in 1895, he delivered an address before the Atlanta Cotton Exposition in which he offered basically a, a view that is remembered by historians as the accommodationist view of segregation, which said, we're willing to tolerate, we meaning African-Americans, are willing to tolerate segregation so long as you give us economic opportunity. <laughs> so it was sort of reconciliationist in that sense. Historians differ, divide over this. Some would call this the politics of the possible. Some would uh, side more fully with the person who becomes his arch rival, W.E.B. Du Bois, who will go on to found NAACP. But Booker T. Washington is unquestionably the most famous black man in America. His view of sort of, of accommodationism wins him the support of white philanthropists. So it gives him a lot of influence. And frankly, in among Southern African-Americans, he's probably the most respected voice. Right. And so tell us the link now between these two. So had they heard of each other or? Well, Carver had clearly heard of Booker T. Washington. <laughs> yes. Uh, Booker T. Washington is at Tuskegee, where Carver's going to land. And he's trying to staff Tuskegee with an all-black staff. He wants all-black faculty because he wants Tuskegee to be a testament to how great the future is for African-Americans. There is one black man with an advanced degree in agricultural science, and that is George Washington Carver. So he hears about him, and he's like, we have to get this guy. The same year, he actually offers uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who will become his big rival, a position. And Du Bois briefly considers it and then says no. He's got this degree in agriculture. Why was agriculture, I suppose, is my next question, is, is so important? Why did he need, oh, we need someone with agriculture? Like, What was the problem in that particular area that required the knowledge that George Washington Carver had? The reason that there's a huge need for it requires that we back up to the end of the Civil War and understand. So the end of the Civil War obviously brought an end to slavery. And that means that all of the wealth white Southern elites had held in uh, enslaved people was now gone. So they change, in short, from labor lords to landlords. So now their wealth is tied up in land. And this is where we get into sharecropping. This is where we're going to get into sharecropping. So they have their cash poor. All the Confederate money is now worthless. Their slave wealth is gone. What they have is land. What African-Americans have is knowledge, agricultural knowledge, a willingness to work. What they're not willing to do is work under conditions that approximate slavery. So the solution that they hit on then is the labor that the African-Americans have and the land that the former planters have, in theory, is allows for a workable arrangement, right? Which is that you work on the land that we own and in return, you give us some percentage of the crop, right? And in theory, it seems fine. African-American families don't live in quarters anymore. They sprout on individual farms. Labor is more or less like a white family. The problem that happens is that African-Americans were vulnerable to exploitation at every turn. 
just to be clear, this is what we call when we say sharecropping. This is what we mean. It's so it's African Americans working on white owned land in payment for part of the crop that they grow. Yeah, the, it doesn't have to be. If, by the 1930s, there are lots of white sharecroppers as well. Oh, right, okay, right. right. And, um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. so you, you're farming land that's not your own. In return, the landlord gets a share of the crop. The problem is that people need to eat before crops are harvested. Moreover, cotton isn't edible to begin with. Well, this is the kind of problem is that the fact that you have this monocrop of cotton, which is historically so dominant and is still so dominant. And anyone who knows anything about agriculture means that the soil just becomes barren and unusable. Yeah, it actually gets worse after the Civil War. So before the Civil War in Macon County, Alabama, which is where Tuskegee is, the single most cultivated crop was cotton. But other crops in the aggregate outnumbered cotton. There were more acres than other crops. As sharecropping emerges, there's no reason to allow for landlords to allow people to plant anything other than cotton. And there's no incentive for the tenants to plant anything other than cotton because that's the only thing that might possibly get them out of debt, right? And so the result is that two-thirds of the cultivated land is in cotton by the end of the 1870s. And so to furnish themselves, to have food for the year, they have to go to merchants or to landlords for loans, for food. And because everybody is charging exorbitant interest rates as high as 60%, for instance, sharecroppers wind up basically in an endless cycle of dependence and debt. There are more factors. The cotton of African-Americans is generally graded lower. They wind up in a situation where there is no possibility of extracting themselves from it. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how Codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So 
So we've got a wonderful bit of context there. We've got a very bad political situation, but we've also got a very bad ecological situation in that you've got a situation which is completely unsustainable. In walks George Washington Carver. Yeah. So as you noted, with increased cotton, we get increased erosion. In fact, there's no incentive to take care of the land at all, right? The landlords have moved to the cities. Now, was there no knowledge about this? There must have been some knowledge that like, if we're just going to plant cotton exclusively, this is not a sustainable thing. Well, what people noticed was changes in the landscape. So there had been some erosion in the antebellum era before the Civil War. It accelerates in ways that actually rework the entire hydrology of some regions of the South, right? It's that much erosion goes into water. But the white planters and frankly, the Alabama Department of Agriculture, they see what they're conditioned to see. And you look around and you see increased erosion. And if you're a white planter at the time, you say, well, what has changed? Well, the difference is that slavery is gone and this is the best that we can expect of free black labor. And so we get these huge eroded fields. African-Americans are being blamed for it. W.E.B. Du Bois points this out. He's one of the few people to really challenge this and say, look, it's actually this racist society that's producing this vast erosion, right? But no one's really listening to Du Bois on this score. So this is the world that Carver encounters when he uh, steps off a train in Macon County, Alabama, having accepted Booker T. Washington's offer. So he's now working at, um, yeah, at Tuskegee. It was the institute at the time. Yeah, today it's Tuskegee University. And he shows up with a head full of knowledge and a conviction that he's going to be of service to his people. And he really believes he can fix this problem in a few years and return to his first love, which is art. What crucial bit of knowledge did he have that he thought would help? Well, he had been trained as a conventional agricultural scientist. So he thought if we apply the right technology, right, the most up-to-date technology, the most up-to-date fertilizers, if we can convince people to farm properly, right, then all of these problems will go away. So things like nitrogen fixing, things like crop rotation. Yeah, crop rotation for sure. You have the application of what then were like salts, like chemically compounded fertilizers. And if we would just do this, you know, use the most modern equipment, so two horse plows and and he gets down there. And so when he starts working at the experiment station, two of his first three bulletins are really about fertilizers. And he's describing them as if these people had no idea what they looked like rather than they couldn't afford them. Right. And then it slowly dawns on him that the application of these up-to-date implements and efforts to maximize production don't make any sense for these farmers who are perpetually in debt. And he also encounters racism in a way he never had. I mean, he's nearly lynched himself when he's on an expedition with a white woman uh, who's come down to photograph black schools. So basically, the structural situation was the thing that was preventing anything from happening. He had answers to the problem the physical problem, the ecological problem, but was faced up against the structural issues? Well, initially, initially he does, right? Initially he thinks he does. Yeah. And what he discovers is that it doesn't make, that the solutions he came with don't make any sense at all, right? So he throws himself into this campaign to improve the lives of these impoverished sharecroppers, which really unfolds on four levels. He's going to teach at the university and then the people he teaches are going to go out and teach other people. He gives public lectures he does work at the experiment station and then publishes bulletins about them. And then he begins driving out into the county around him to do extension work. Can I talk about this public lectures? I've got a photo in front of me. I mean, there's a picture of him kind of on stage, surrounded by a huge group of people. Can you tell us a bit about what's going on here? Sure. This is a picture of the Jessup wagon. So from the very beginning, Carver had gone out into the surrounding community to meet with farmers, especially on Sundays. 
And what happens is that he begins to institutionalize this. To give public lectures, you need the support of the white elites, right? So he has to be really subversive about how he's doing this. <laughs> All right. So it's like secret lectures in order to improve the lots of the farmers, the workers, away from the prying eyes of the elite. Yeah. Or when they're around, you have to frame it in such a way. Uh, so Carver does this, uh, and it's bringing a, a new message at this point, but because by 1906, he has realized that this bigger is better agriculture, that maximizing efficiency, that none of that makes sense. And so, in fact, one of the people he commissions to take the wagon out complains about this and says, shouldn't we be using better stuff? And he says, no, we should use stuff that the farmers, that's within the grasp of the farmers. Basically, the beginnings of the organic movement in a way, this sort of ecological, you know, properly learning to live off the land. So, yeah, so he adopted his gospel of scientific agriculture, and for him it was a religious kind of thing, to the circumstances uh, in ways that were certainly idiosyncratic to those circumstances, but that were also really far-seeing. So gradually, basically, the heart of his campaign shifted away from technological fixes and toward convincing black farmers just to think differently. See, realizing that black farmers, that the black tenant farmers of Macon County understood their second-class citizenship as an environmental predicament. He wanted to get them to think differently about the fields they were working in. So if they could see the natural world around them with new eyes, it's just the beginning of ecological agriculture, right? So a complete, a complete change of philosophy, not just kind of use this kind of fertilizer, it'll work, but actually just completely rethinking our relationship with the earth. Right. And if they could do that, then they could find a measure of respite basically from the exigencies of Jim Crow, right? And maybe even get some economic independence that would protect them further. So he says things like, we do not recognize and appreciate what nature has so lavishly provided for us. And he over and over again in his bulletin says things like, we are richer than we think we are. And he begins listing, he provides lists of things. So mostly for waste products. So in the vines of tomatoes, there's a dye. Out in the woods in the surrounding community, there are wild plums. In the swamp muck that people tromp over on the way to their fields, there's fertilizer. There's even rare, what he calls rare beauty and fragrance in these wild flowers that are growing along the creeks in the nearby county. Yeah. he talk, There's a line about him talking about infinity in a flower. There's something very poetic about it. Like All of his descriptions are really sort of steeped in art and poetry. It's not like science as you think of it. No, it's... This is one of the reasons why evangelicals wound up adopting him, and actually Catholics for that matter, too. (laughs) He didn't draw firm lines between his religion and his science. They were all of of a single piece. So he stopped advocating a system, is what he stopped doing, and began advocating a way of thinking. He says, so say, yes. say, go ahead. He mentioned right at the beginning that he was a kind of almost like a Forrest Gump character. And I just wonder how much of his personality led into this kind of more holistic way of seeing the world. Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably the case. I mean, he was going to be a curious guy no matter what, just from the very beginning. But yeah, the experiences that he had, it certainly shaped how he approached these things. And he learned how to do this himself. He had made the most of these circumstances of course did he not have any fear for example like was he because he's out there on the edge did he have any fear of the establishment the elites at all or, or he just he's like i don't care this is what i'm going to do because there's a kind of missionary zeal about it there is absolutely a missionary zeal about it and there's no fear of elites there's no fear i mean there are times when he's afraid yes he's afraid when he's newly lynched <laughs> but uh i mean a more i mean more structural fear you know know your place no he's he's not he uh, gets his ideas, his collecting dandelion leaves for salads and things like that, make him persona non grata at 
Tuskegee, where these people are just thinking, what is this guy doing? This does not look like scientific agriculture. And he just doesn't care. He just keeps telling them that this is what they should be doing. And some of the the newspaper coverage of his talks before he becomes famous say things like, I don't know what he's talking about. They're going to have us eating acorns before you know it. You know, he got pigs eating acorns. I think he did get pigs eating acorns. He did get pigs eating acorns. So basically, though, is he uh, repeatedly encounters this severely denuded landscape inhabited by a desperately poor people, and he links those two. Right, a poor land produces only a poor people. He says he became a soil builder in an era in which soil building was an afterthought. And again, this system, like he's telling farmers, if you begin to think this way begin to put some of his suggestions into effect and others, he tells them, will suggest themselves to the farmers. But the trick for the whole thing was to think ecologically. He says things, and he doesn't use the word ecologically. The term ecosystem wasn't coined until the 1930s uh, when Arthur Tansley did it. But uh, he says things like, the mutual dependence of the animal, mineral, and vegetable kingdoms and how utterly impossible it is for one to exist in a highly organized state without the others is the thing that farmers need to know. That is ecological agriculture. And you can see how far he drifted from the mainstream. So the Alabama Department of Agriculture is saying that the manufacture of scientifically prepared fertilizers and their application to the soil is the best means of estimating the progress a given county in the state is making in agriculture. And by 1911, Carver's writing to Booker T. Washington because he has to deal with critics at the institution. And he says this, we know that commercial fertilizers will stimulate and for a while produce good results, but by and by a collapse will come as the soil will be reduced to practically sand and clay. The crying need for practically every foot of land we have in cultivation is vegetable matter. He puts in parentheses humus here. And every means at our command should be used to supply that end. Crikey, we need him. We need him back. Yeah, he, <laughs> he he <laughs> that was my contention. He's a prophet of sustainable agriculture. That's the word. He's a prophet. That's a great word. And did he have an influence? Did people buy into this? They're like, right, yes, we're going to follow the ways of George Washington Carver. Or was he largely ignored? Or what was the reaction? Well, at the time, early on, before he became a rock star, which we'll come back to, he met with pretty good results up to World War I. So the number of tenant farmers in Macon County, Alabama, uh, when he showed up, uh, about 96% of the black farmers were tenant farmers. And it drops into the 80s by World War I. This is not wholly due to Carver. Booker T. Washington's working and like buying land secretly from white people because they'll buy sell to Tuskegee and then turning around and selling it secretly to black farmers. So there's more at work. But it, it, it seems to work at some level. But ultimately, his vision teetered and collapsed on the socioeconomic limits of the South. He could not overcome the structural limits of the South. We started this conversation in 1921. You know, the peanut thing, it was promotion of peanut growing as a way of promoting crop rotation, as a way of making the soil healthy. That's part of it, isn't it? Well, I'm just worried that listeners are going like, what is it with the peanuts? What is it with the so, peanuts? So yeah, what he does with cowpeas, which are nitrogen fixing plants, and with sweet potatoes, which grow easily and provide lots of nutrition, and with peanuts, which provide lots of nutrition, they're high in protein, and they could be grown and harvested at times where it's not peak cotton production time. So this is why he's working on uh, on these peanuts. And then he's also trying to find ways to make them applicable to these impoverished farmers by providing recipes and that sort of thing. But he doesn't become the rock star. He's not a national figure until he goes before Congress. And then that is covered everywhere. And then he gives this talk over and over again. 
And then all of these different groups latch onto him. Again, white supremacist and the NAACP, right? What did he say at Congress? Was it like an amazing JFK moment speech that gripped the crowd? It wasn't, well, the peanut lobby got him invited. The peanut lobby lobby has been looking for a tariff for years. What wins him the support of the lobby is that he is so capable of sort of deflecting, making little jokes, and then sort of his his self-deprecation, these little jokes. And then these amazing things that he shows them, people are just like, well, what's the next thing he's going to do? He's entertaining, really, with his inventions. So he really is a rock star. He's a personality. and He is a personality. And then for the next decade, he gives this talk about peanuts over and over again. And he thinks he's doing great work for his race. This is why he's willing to do it. By the 1930s, he says, this is silly. But by that point, He's just the peanut man. Well, this is it. He's a victim of his own success. And you see this across culture. If you're a genuine rock star and you have your big hit, everyone remembers you from the big hit, despite all the amazing other work you do. And I can, we like to pigeonhole people in very narrow rooms. That is absolutely the case. And he'd been looking for affirmation, which he often, as I suggested, did not find at Tuskegee. And suddenly he has all the affirmation he's been looking for his whole life. And so this is seductive. I mean, People like to be affirmed. He's being affirmed. It's nice to be liked by multiple. It is not- it's nice to be liked by, by everyone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would love to have a Time Magazine article that compares me to Leonardo. <laughs> you know, Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah, he was known as the Black Leonardo. The Black he? Leonardo, because he's an artist and a scientist. And, you know, so he falls into different groups in this post-fame stage. There's a group of chemists that start this chemergy movement, which is mostly about biofuels and also about chemists sort of ruling the world. They drag him in through Henry Ford. Henry Ford knows him because he's been looking for alternative uses for waste products from the farm. So we've got this great rock star. We understand why he became a rock star. We understand his missionary zeal. How did it all end? And why do we need to sort of rethink his reputation? Why do we need to rethink his legacy, I suppose? Yeah, so Carver, by the 1930s, is often invoked as the world's greatest chemist. (laughs) He's not the world's greatest chemist. He was not trained as a chemist. He's like, I just wanted to draw plants. I just wanted to be an artist. Exactly. No one understands me in my art. (laughs) And so because he became famous for things he shouldn't really have been famous for. I mean, his inventions weren't in chemistry. His contribution wasn't in inventing peanut butter. You know, uh, he became famous because there was this was an advertising uh, gimmick, basically that worked. It was. A- but did he die with that reputation? Did he sort of pass away with that reputation of being famous for the wrong things? No, he was. Uh, well, people didn't know that he was famous for the wrong things. But he looked back and he stopped giving. By the 1930s, he stopped giving his peanut exhibition. He said, "Look, this is a technical exhibit that's of use to a few select people in the peanut industry. It's doesn't doing. It's not doing any good for the common people. I came to help." And he looked back on his life, toward the end of his life in the late 1930s, and he said, my work is that of conservation. His whole life's work, he said, was really an effort on behalf of conservation. And in part, he meant by that, like reusing waste products. But I think it also belongs in this larger movement. So James Wilson, who was one of the people he studied under the Iowa Agricultural College and was the Secretary of Agriculture when the U.S. Forest Service was created, oversaw Gifford Pinchot, who worked with Teddy Roosevelt, of course, and created sort of America's um, national forest or really greatly expanded America's national forest. And so in the history of the conservation movement or the modern environmental movement, they often go back to the era Carver worked in. And the great heroes are people like John Muir, who uh, is influential for the Sierra Club, of course, Teddy Roosevelt, Gifford Pinchot, 
Maybe you go to some other scientists. But for the most part, it's about wilderness and it's lily white. And I think Carver, if we take him seriously, this was the contention in my book, uh, as a figure in the conservation tradition, reorients it, that history in really important ways. So Carver doesn't deserve to be remembered for peanuts, but he does deserve to be taken seriously as a figure in America's environmental tradition, not least because his vision speaks more clearly to the problems we're facing in the world today, where we're talking about often agricultural problems, often in places where there are vast disparities in wealth and power in the sort of world that Carver was in. And his vision underscores the fact that really sustainable environmental solutions require equitable social circumstances, right? That environmental and social justice are profoundly linked. And so the word environmental justice doesn't really emerge until the 1980s. But Carver is an important predecessor of this. He sees the connections between racial exploitation and environmental exploitation, and he's working to rectify those. And if they, you know, his campaign teetered on the structural imbalances of the South, structural racism of the South, he nevertheless offered a vision forward, one that I think we could think more seriously about today. Oh, Mark, what a great story. Listen, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this. It's really interesting being able to revisit a famous life and reframe it in such important ways. I want just to say thank you for coming on and, and sharing that. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Dallas. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hope that's made you rethink George Washington Carver's place in history. And to be honest, it was he was somebody who I, I knew about the peanuts, but very little else. And it's completely opened my eyes. A really, really fascinating story. Uh, don't forget to leave a rating and a review because the algorithm demands it. And of course, it helps others discover the show. We love hearing what you think about the show and any ideas you have for stories. So get in touch with me via Twitter or however, you know, whatever method you can you can think of to get in touch with me. Uh, next time, I'm kind of on a bit more home turf next time because I'm looking at the Victorian space race. The Victorians who took us to the moon. I cannot wait for that. And I'll see you then. Thanks for your company. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive... 
and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.